morning church and uh, it's a great pr privilege to be in the uh, gathering and meeting house of God's people and together with the saints of God and so good morning to you I'm glad that you're here it's also a blessing to uh, be able to worship together and to say the truth to one another uh, the scripture tells us that we're to do that and so in our songs it's not about what's your favorite tune it's about who is your favorite topic and it's Jesus and so what we do here it's Christ-centered and gospel-saturated and so uh, I hope that that is building you up in the faith and so uh, thank you Pastor Dan for those of you that are doing the instruments uh, people that practice during the week and uh, do that on Wednesday nights they're here late doing that and show up early on Sunday morning and uh, get all this together so that we can come before God and sing him our praises to the best of our ability by his grace. Now you're in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and uh, I've been told that Pastor Dan did not damage you too badly uh, last time and um, so thank you Pastor Dan for standing in and preaching God's word faithfully. Much appreciated my friend. Thank you for doing that. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 7 through 16 and uh, we're going to talk about the Christ gifted church now uh, if you're just parachuting in with us today and you're in chapter 4 you've missed so much so let me start from the beginning and preach all the sermons and we'll get caught up okay um, you 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 and I have to realize that when we come to chapter 4 it's built upon all of the things that we've already heard the first three chapters are just about the gospel it's how does God take people who are dead in trespasses and sin who have absolutely no ability to respond to God that the only ability that we have is to respond to sin how does God take those people and not just those people but they're sinners and they're from different backgrounds they have different ideas about what life is and what humanity is. And some of those from different backgrounds hate each other. And so how does God take people who hate God and hate one another and turn them into his family? One that loves him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love one another loyally and continually and sacrificially. How does God do all of that? And what we are discovering in the book of Ephesians is that God has done it all from start to finish. Nothing in this gives any moment, not even a, a, just even a hint of credit to humanity in any way. Everything is by him and for him and to him for his glory and his alone. Now, we also discovered in these first three chapters that the purpose of God is to take this uh, group of sinners, turn them into his new nation, his new Israel, if you will, and cause them to love one another. And he takes people from different, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different places of the world, different languages, and he makes them one in their union with Christ. They become united in the faith. And so it is God who has done that miracle. Name anywhere else that that's happening in the world. It doesn't. And so God and God alone has done that. Now, why has God done this? 
Well, the Bible tells us in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 that God has done this so that in verse 21, so to him would be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is God's purpose and plan. God's purpose and plan is to take sinners from every walk of life, choose them from out of the mess that they're in, out of their deadness, make them alive in Christ, unite them with him, unite them with one another, make them the church, and through the church receive glory forever and ever through all generations. That is his plan. Now, if you're a person who calls yourself a Christian and you want to badmouth the church, I want to let you know that you are at odds with God. You, you cannot ignore the church, minimize the church, dismiss the church, and claim that you in your isolation are walking with God. It's an impossibility. You're walking outside of the plan of God. Secondly, you cannot be a Christian and have animosity toward people based upon their ethnicity. We are of one blood. The Bible tells us that. And when you come into the kingdom of God and into the family of God, you love the people of God and you no longer call yourself by your former ethnicity. You now are new in Christ. You are now a Christian. That is the title you now bear. Drop the other ones. And we don't have any hyphenated titles. You're a Christ in Christ or you're not. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And that's all that matters for eternity. In eternity, there are no segments where the white folk meet over there and the black folk over there and the Asians over here. It's all one gathered around the throne because we are united because of our union with Jesus. And so that is the unifying factor. It's Him. And we call ourselves after Him. He is our love. He is our pride. He is the one that we obey. He's the one that we model our lives after. We're not in a search for where we came from. We're struggling and fighting to get where we're going. And so we are about future. That's what Christians do, future. All the reparations that need to be made were made at the cross of Christ. All the sin that's ever been done it hasn't been done against me and you. It's been done against God Almighty. And He has paid His own debt. And so now he comes to this fourth chapter, and here's what he does. This is how God's going to do all of that through you. What a glorious and grand purpose God has. And to prove the surpassing greatness of his power and the inexplicable description of his grace, he's going to do all of that through people like you. And like me. Now look what he does here. He talks about in these verses of this fourth chapter. How he's going to do it through your ministry. The ministry of his church. Now look what he says. First of all in verses 7 through the first half verse 12. We look at the provision for ministry. Christ provides what's needed in order to accomplish this grand purpose of God through the church. Christ is the one who provides. God calls us to do something. Then he gives us the ability to do it. Isn't that just like God? 
so that all things would be for his credit and his glory and none for ours. Now look in verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high and led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. Who has descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, the provision for ministry in those first few verses. Look at Christ's generosity in giving in verse 7. These given to each one of us. Grace was given. And this is not talking about saving grace. This is talking about giftedness. He has given us a gift of grace. An ability to each one of us. Each person who is in Christ has been given a spiritual gift. A gift by the grace of God. Sometimes it appears that it's a conglomeration of gifts. But God has gifted each one of us. And notice that it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. How much has Christ given? What kind of Savior is He? Is He a stingy Savior who gives just a little bit? Is He the kind who saves us and we barely make it across the finish line? No, we've already seen that He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He's a generous Savior. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. I and the Father are one. He's a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he said, freely I lay my life down, freely I take it up. No one takes it from me, I give it. He's a giver. I came that they may have life and have it to the fullest extent. He's a generous, generous Savior. And so when he gives us gifts, it's no small matter. He has given us gifts that we may bless his church and accomplish that which he has designed for the church to accomplish. That we would gather from the nations all of the elect from every ethnicity so that on that day they would be gathered around the throne and worshiping our Savior who deserves all glory and power and strength. He gifts us for that purpose. And he does it generously. It's more than enough that he gives to us. Look at his authority for giving. Verses 8 through 10. 
And it speaks that he ascended on high and he led the host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. And then he talks about he that ascended is also he that descended and so on. Now, we are going to miss a point here if we get hung up on something that for some reason is stuck in the craw of so many people. So many people are determined to put Jesus in hell when he died. Let me just go ahead and tell you this. There is no biblical evidence for that. That is something that was made up by dispensationalists because it fit their scheme. The book of Hebrews tells us that when he died, he went and presented his blood on the altar of God. We see people take this particular section of the scripture and say, well, he descended to the lower regions of the earth. ESV has good punctuation here who descended to the lower regions, the earth. Now, what is this lower regions, the earth, or the lower regions of the earth, if you want to put it that way? Now, people have, again, read into that phrase the definition. See, Jesus descended into hell. See that? Well, Psalm 139.15 says, When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. If you're going to be consistent, then you have to also, if you're going to say that Jesus descended into hell here, the lower regions of the earth, then you're going to have to be consistent and also say that you were created in hell. Let's be consistent now. You see, you don't get to cherry pick to fit your theology. You have to actually go with what the Bible says. And the Bible here does not. It's not a reference to hell or to Hades. We don't have any evidence for that viewpoint. Some people take the passage out of Peter and say, well, that he went and preached to those in, in hell. He went and preached like, why in the world would the people in the days of Noah get a second chance, but nobody else got one? I mean, let's think about this. And it says in Peter that he did it by the Spirit. What, what does that mean? He talks about Noah's preaching. And Noah preached to those who are now in hell. Noah preached the gospel. He was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says of him. How did Noah do that? By the Spirit of God. It's not talking about Jesus there. It's talking about Noah. For Christ's sake. Taking scripture and forming it and twisting it to, to fit a preconceived notion that happens to fit your theology. Now, do you know why you need Jesus to go into hell and preach? Because those people who say that believe that the Old Testament saints did not get saved. That they went to a section of Sheol. They can't spell it. <clears throat> went to a section of Sheol. It's divided into two parts, they say. Where is that in the scripture? I don't know. Divided into two parts. And there are those that were the sinners. And then those that tried to keep the law. Now... Seriously. So then what you're going to say is Jesus went to the one compartment and he got Moses and them out of semi-hell. Level one hell. Y'all weren't as bad as the others. And then he hopped over into the other one and preached the gospel, but they don't have any chance to be saved because they're already damned. Now, really, really, do you see 
how far-fetched that really is. What is the Bible speaking of here? The Bible is simply speaking of the incarnation of Jesus. That he, as the scripture says to us here, that he went to the lower regions, that is as far down away from Godhood as you can go. I mean, at least in hell, everybody's consistent. He had to come to earth. And he comes to earth here, and he comes and does what? He also has ascended where? Above all the heavens. Now, do you see that the Bible here is using language to say that Jesus in his incarnation coming down to earth went as low as a man can go, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man and becoming obedient even to death, even to the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and giving him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what this passage of scripture is saying. That is what's being discussed here. So please don't read something into it other than the glory of Jesus and his great love for the elect that he would come to this world, this nasty, yucky, cruel world, and he would come here to rescue. Now, it speaks of in this section of scripture that he, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now, who are the captives? There are lots of differences of opinion on that. But here's what I would say. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that he came to deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Satan had held them in bondage. He held us in bondage and through the fear of death has controlled us. And what has Jesus done in salvation? He has led the captives captive. He has captured for himself those who were captivated by Satan and sin. And he leads them in a parade in heaven. And he looks behind the chariot and he sees all these that are now chained to him. We're his servants. We're his slaves. But the good thing about it is our king, our conqueror is also our friend and brother. And what has he done? When the conqueror goes and he conquers other nations, what does he do? He comes back with all these gifts, the bounty that he has. And what has Christ done? The bounty of his conquest, he now takes it and pours it back out on those that he has captured. That is his church. Why does he do that? So that in the end, even the demons of hell will have to say, may all glory be to God. Who by grace has done what nothing else could do. That's what this section is about. Do not get hung up on trying to wrestle Jesus into hell. Instead praise him that he's ascended to heaven. And he has given gifts to men. Now what is Christ's strategy for giving? Verses 11 through 12 there. It says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, which is really one office there, to do something, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
So we're still talking about providing for ministry. God has given gifted men. He has gifted men and he has given them to the church for a purpose. The purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if you've been in the doorway class with me, as many of you have, you have heard me say something like this. If a friend of yours were to come with you to our worship service and ask you, where is your ministry? You probably, out of conditioning, would point to me, well, he's right up there. But don't worry, we're not all like him. Right? But he's right up there. You would be accurate but inaccurate. What you really should say is they're all in here. Fellow ministers of the gospel. Because God's purpose is to give gifted men to the church to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of ministry. Now, ministry here doesn't mean a formal office. It simply means that you must do what God has gifted you to do with and in your church so that the church will become that which God has created to be so that His vision for the church will be completed for His glory and for His honor. That God has taken these dead sinners, resurrected them by the power of the Spirit of God to believe upon Jesus, to take advantage of His redemption by putting their confidence in Him, be filled with the Spirit of God by the gifts of God, and be able to minister and serve each other in His name. So that the watching world will say, wow, we didn't think that was possible on this earth. The building up of the body of Christ, that's what you do. Now, you have here some titles of offices. Let's briefly hit these. The apostles, that's the twelve. The apostles had to be an eyewitness of the life of Christ and of him as the resurrected Lord. Eyewitness. There are no successors to the apostolic office, not even in Rome. Thank you. Yes, I just said that. There is none. No one has that authority to tell the church, now I have a teaching that you must obey. Nobody has that authority. The apostles were foundational for the establishing of the church. They were given extraordinary miraculous powers in many cases so that's the apostles and the twelve and they've died out and then the prophets in the early church there the bible was not yet completed and written down and so there were those who were prophets that would give a message from god like agabus remember that in the book of acts but they're few and far between they're not many of them and most of the time, the prophetic office, even in the Old Testament, is not about telling some future event. It's more about telling about God's judgment and on those who disobey. And so uh, the prophets, but that office is no longer continuing. It was a foundational office. Then we have the evangelist. Now, with evangelists, we have a tendency to think of the man with no vocal cords on US 23. I am terrible. 
all I could think of was, can you at least spell cord correctly for vocal cord? My wife and I were talking, oh, for the gift of tongues where people actually knew English. Hey, Chad, hey, man, bro. Man, you just know 110 and 220. We don't care what else you know, bro. The evangelist. So we have a tendency to think of these as people who travel around in a you know, mobile home and live at a campground and come and preach at a church and, and you know, stomp and snort and leave with your money. But um, these were usually people like Timothy and Philip, the deacon, who were really missionaries. And they were a representative of, of the council of apostles or a particular apostle. Now, it doesn't mean that people can't do evangelism. And some people like to preach uh, at evangelistic meetings. There's nothing wrong with that. I've preached at those myself. It's hard for you to imagine. I used to do tent revivals some. How about that? In Florida. Why? Why? Well, in Florida, there is a reason with the age population it helps, but the evangelist. So uh, is there someone that can preach evangelistically? Yes, some people are given to that and they're good at it. But remember, all of these people are to be accountable to a local church. They're not just to be out there on their own. One of the good things that's happened with COVID is all these, quote, parachurch groups that are not accountable to any local church have found themselves in dire straits. Do you know why? Because you're not following the New Testament model. I have them calling me now all the time. Can we schedule a meeting? And all we, we got our meetings all booked up. Every Sunday, we're good. Right? I, we don't, we're not responsible for supporting that. Right? I'll get you one in here one of these days. Y'all cry out tears. Evangelists. The thing you have the shepherds and teachers. And we, some other translations, pastors and teachers. And this is the office that I occupy here for your church. What is my job? Well, a shepherd in the New Testament model and in that area of the world doesn't pick seeds out of the lamb's little wool and pat him on the head. They lead. And you know that if you have a sheep that keeps going astray, do you know what you do? You break its leg. And the shepherd carries that little lamb around with the broken leg so that the lamb will learn, do not stray. Your safety and security is staying close to the shepherd. Shepherds lead. If you ever see a guy driving a church, forcing it, he's not a shepherd. Shepherds lead and people follow. And we lead, yes, by the authority of God but also by the influence of our lives. And each one of you did something dumb. You voted for me to come here. So you did that. Now then, you got to deal with it. I was telling Jim Rucker this morning, whatever happens today is partially your fault. He was on the search committee. He was, but that's the way it works. So... You follow. Why? Because you sense, as Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Is he following Christ? If he is, then let's do this. Let's do our best. Doesn't it mean that we agree on every single thing? We don't have to agree on every single thing. 
but we agree about the direction that we're here to glorify God and to preach the name of Jesus to anyone that will hear and to build up the church in the faith. That's what we're here to do. It's pretty simple, isn't it? So that's what we do. And then as a teacher, if you're a pastor and you can't teach, you're not a pastor. You ever heard people say something like this? He's a good pastor. He's just not a very good preacher. That's stupid. As a pastor, your primary task is to teach. That's your primary task. Why? Why is that? If, if, if I don't make that my primary task, guess what doesn't happen? Verse 12, to equip you for the work of ministry. I get calls sometimes that people want me to do ministry. They'll say, would you do this or would you do that? And I don't mind. I like to do ministry. But a lot of times I say, why don't you do it? Well, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I just don't, I don't know. I don't have time. Oh, okay. So God is pressing this on your heart, but you want to hand it off to me. This is not football. When the Holy Spirit is pressing on you, that means you, not somebody else. You don't get to serve God by proxy. You are a minister. You are gifted by God. You're equipped to, to do whatever it is. So you're equipped to do it. And you say, I don't know how to do it. I know you don't know how to do it. I'll help you know how to do it. If I don't know how to do it, I'll send you out there anyway. You make a fool of yourself and then you'll figure it out. So you're, you're, that's the purpose here. And so this is how it works. Equipping you. If I do the ministry for you, guess what? You never minister. You know, I'm the professional, right? But, you know, I should know what I'm doing, and sometimes I do, not always, but I try to know what I'm doing. But you, it's your ministry. And God is, is great. Now, you are to serve under the authority of the church. If the church doesn't want you to do that ministry, you shouldn't do it. It doesn't, even if you're not here on campus, even if it's something personal, you think, oh, I think the Lord wants me to do it. The question still is, am I under the authority of my church? Is my church behind me in doing this? And if the church is not behind you, don't do it. So pastors and teachers are meant to lead, but they're also meant to teach the doctrine of the apostles. We don't make this up as we go. We don't get to say, God told me. We get to say, God told them, and now I get to tell you. That's how that works. So this is the provision for ministry, how God provides. Now, what's the purpose of it? Now, we get down to the second half of verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ, congregational unity, 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's a congregational unity, the building up of the body of Christ, until we all reach the unity of the faith. What is the faith here? Unity is caused by agreement and conviction of the truth. That's how unity comes. You, you, you can build artificial unity out of something if you want. But it won't last. There, there's, there's not the union that comes through Christ. We build up. And building up here is a construction word. And it means both numerical growth as well as growth in strength for reflecting the character of Christ. And here in this context, probably the second meaning, the growth and strength for reflecting the character of Christ is most emphasized. And the unity is a firm agreement in the foundational and unqualified doctrine of Christianity. For example, the triune nature of God, we all have to agree on that. If you don't agree that God is triune, these trinity, then you're out. 
well, I can be a member of this church if I want to. Oh, no, you can't. This is not a unilateral decision on your part. Sometimes in doorway class, uh, it gets kind of quiet. I'll I walk through some things like this is what our church does and how we do things. This is what we believe. And sometimes people say, well, I think I want to join this church. I said, that's great. Now, we're still trying to decide if we want you to join here. The church has authority over your membership. Your membership is not your authority over the church. Right? Boy, is that a lost art. The trying nature of God, the deity and humanity of Christ. Believing in the ruin and depraved nature of man. Believing in salvation through the righteous life and substitutionary death of Christ Jesus in the place of those who put their faith and confidence in him. His bodily resurrection from the dead, his ascension on high, and his imminent and bodily return. Those are the main hallmarks of the faith. And we agree on those and are convicted by those and live by those. And that's what creates unity. But not just that. It's not just this spoken of here, the unity uh, that comes from the faith, but also of the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God, not just an intellectual knowledge. That's what we just spoke about, the faith. That's our conscious knowledge of things. But here we're talking about the knowledge of the Son of God, not just an intellectual knowledge, but a heart knowledge. People who would be one with us, must know him by heart. Not just by their brain, but by their heart. And love him with all their heart. So the purpose of ministry is congregational unity, but also spiritual maturity. To mature manhood, verse 13 says. This is no weak church that's pictured here. Many times church in the minds of Christians is something passive that you do. You come, you sit, you stew, and you leave. And so they think that's what church is. Because we, we say that sometimes. Let's go to church. And so that's okay to say. But sometimes we think that church is just simply you go there, you sit through it, you endure it, and you leave. But what's pictured here is not a passive group of people. Instead, this is a powerful, muscular man that's illustrated here. To mature manhood. God's goal is not a flabby, lazy church but one in which each member is strong and ready for battle. We're to be mobilized to fight and stand against all the falsehood of our world. And then doctrinal stability. Again, the purpose of ministry is to bring doctrinal stability. Look in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, without thoughtful and accurate doctrinal teaching. God's people become like little children in a boat in a storm being helplessly blown all over the place. The idea here, the picture is that of an unstable life that goes after this teaching now and then after the next teaching then and then the next one that arrives then. Do you know people like that? Okay, so let, let me, uh, can, can I help you like with a default setting? Okay, let's think about this. Those of you who use a computer, you know, you you got to go in there and some things are your default settings. Let me help you the default setting. You go to the Christian bookstore. You go to Amazon and you order a Christian book. Do not let that book be the default setting of truth for you. 
God has not given to the church Christian authors. Your default setting should be, what did my pastor say? Do not fight me. Don't do it. Just don't do it. It's dumb. Just don't. I'm the one who cares about you. The other people are trying to get your money. Okay? So I'm the one that cares about what happens to you. I'm the one who cares that you don't wreck your life. I'm the one who cares whether you're tossed to and fro all the time and you're unstable. And believe me, your spouse wants you to be stable. So that's what we're aiming for here. Now, those, uh, many of you know I, I, I'm, a, I'm a reader. I can read. And so I read and I buy books by Christian authors. And some of them I make it through chapter 2 and throw it in the garbage. The other day I was going to throw one in the garbage. And I thought, what if Letha gets this one? <laughs> See, I have to even protect my custodian from falsehood. So, you know, you, you have to read that with discernment. And, and it's fine. But, wow, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. But you've got to know. When people are, are, are saying things against what unifies us. And don't go for it. Throw it away. Don't recommend it to somebody. Sometimes you start feeling all warm and fuzzy because you read something that somebody wrote that's warm and fuzzy. And it's a lot more warm and fuzzy than what you get from the pulpit. Why? Because I'm trying to keep out the weeds. And have you ever noticed when you pull up weeds, it just leaves some marks, doesn't it? It just leaves some places. And then if you have to get the hoe out, it's really tough, you know. And you rake around and cultivate and carry on. It's, it's not, I mean, the dirt's not having a good time. But it's necessary. You don't want to read people and follow people and say, I oh, don't worry about the weeds because God loves you. You know, you don't need to worry about it. God loves you just like you are. Well, blah. No, no. God loves because of himself. It ain't got nothing to do with how you are. But what God loves you for is for this purpose that you grow up into mature manhood and have doctrinal stability. Now, here are a couple words. I know I have to hurry. But something that may be, I, I try to think of things that the scripture is saying. I try to discover things that may might cause something to stick in your mind. You realize that? So I try to do it. So he, he says here that in verse 14, we no longer be tossed to and fro. There's a word picture there. Um, carried about by every wind of doctrine, you know, like all false doctrines blowing and blowing you all over the map. But then he says um, that uh, this happens by human cunning. And this word really is a word for playing dice. It's like a gambling word. And the idea is that, you know, you've seen this on the movies or something. That people have loaded dice and the house always wins. So they're making you think you're in the game. But you're not in the game. They're, play, they're tricking you with loaded dice. They're playing games with your heart. And you have to realize that the world is always doing that, even under the cover of Christianity. So they're playing games with your heart. Don't. You can't grow up. You can't be stable. You can't be mature if you do that by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so doctrinal stability doesn't come from messing with those people that are playing with your heart. 
The purpose of ministry is that you would grow up. Congregational unity, spiritual maturity, and doctrinal stability. That's what a church looks like. Now, the practice of ministry. Now, here we go, verses 15 and 16. Rather than being blown around all over the place by false doctrine, letting people play games with your heart, rather than falling for every scheme that somebody comes up with and labels it Christian, what do we do? Rather, see the opposite word? Rather than that, isn't it great how Paul says, not that, but this. That's the that's Christian life. Not that, but this. It's not about a bunch of don'ts. It's about don't, but do. And so he has, rather, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The practice of ministry, first of all, is truthful living in love. Now the words here, speaking truth in love, but the word speaking there, it's notoriously hard to translate. It really is truthing. And the idea here really is practice, not just what you say. As many of our English translations would lead us to think we're just supposed to say truthful things. I think everybody here would understand that even if that were exactly what it means, that your life would have to back up the truth that you're saying. I think we would all agree with that. But the word here really has more than just what you say. It's about living out truthfully, living the truth out. It means to practice the truth, but to do it this way, to also do it with an attitude of selfless love. You know, some people are really good at living out the truth. But it seems selfish. It seems like they're doing it for their own benefit. And perhaps so that they get a little kick out of, I'm a little more godly than the other people I see. You guys that are teachers, especially adult teachers, be very careful about this. You get a lot of knowledge and a lot of truth. And if you're not careful, you begin to look down your nose at other people that don't know as much as you. Of course they don't know as much as you. You're the teacher. But our teaching must be also with an attitude of selflessness. I'm giving away what I have. I've spent a lot of years in classroom and studying intensive study with some of the best Christian scholars in the world for one purpose, to give it all away. Just to give it away, to give it away to a church. Everything that I've got, just give it to them. So they don't have to pay that kind of money, right? They don't have to sit there through all that. Just give it away to them. Be selfless in your living. Give yourself away. If in the context of a congregation you're here like what, what I call tick on a dog Christians. See what they can suck out of the congregation and then when they feel like they're not getting enough blood, they go on to another one. Don't, don't be that way. Instead, you're to be given away. In the congregation, in the context of your church, give yourself away. Find a need and fill it. Find a, a task that needs to be done and do it. So living the truth out, but doing it with selfless love. And then mutual serving in love. When each part is working properly, you see all that in verse 16. Notice the togetherness here. Notice, notice all the joined stuff. The whole body. Not a few people, the whole body. Look at it, joined, held together by every joint with which it is equipped. 
held together, each part working properly. What happens when you have that cohesion? What happens when you are a member of a congregation, not just a name on the roll, but you're actually in people's lives, ministering and loving and serving and giving yourself away? Guess what happens when you do that? It says the body grows and it builds itself up in love. Do you see? If you don't do the ministry that God has given to you, the church doesn't grow in that arena. You have to give yourself away. You say, well, I don't, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this church. Wrong attitude. What are you giving to it? The question is, what is the church getting out of you? What is this congregation? What are these people getting out of you? We're here to be Christ followers. Jesus didn't go to the cross and say, wonder what I'm going to gain out of this. I just don't, man, I don't see, I don't see an upside to this. I don't know. Our Savior has given himself away. And that's what we're called to do as well. So each part, each part must do its part. Being a church member is not a spectator sport. Where you come and hear some guy talk for an hour and leave. It's not a spectator sport. This is, in a sports analogy, this is just a film room. We're just preparing for battle here. We're just preparing for the game. This is not the game. Okay, we're preparing for it. We're getting ready for it. I'm giving you chalk talk here. The fact is we have to grow up into Christ. And it's interesting that those who are greedy to be ministered to grow the least. While those hungry to minister to others grow the most. Do you see that? Some of you are stalled in your Christian growth. You know why? You're absorbing and taking in and taking in and taking in. You're like a little kid at the table. Mommy, mommy, bring me something to drink. Mommy, bring me something to eat. Mommy, I want peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mommy. And so you're like that to the church. And you're staying a child because of that. At some point, you've got to say to the kid, get up and make your own sandwich. You can do it. Get up and do that. Not only that, while you're up, make me one. Right? So if you're going to grow. Some hard things. You, know, you guys have got far enough along. You're you know, raising kids and stuff. And some hard things. I mean, you know, you have to let kids make decisions and deal with stuff. And you could easily fix it. But you just have to let them deal with it. And have the experience of it. Why? So they grow up. The truth is that no one grows in isolation either. Notice all the join together and all of that. Nobody grows in the Lord in isolation. It's important that we have our individual and personal and private spiritual disciplines. Those are important. Your Bible intake and your prayer. Those are important. And fasting. Those are important. And silence and meditation. Those are important disciplines. Somebody went like, silence? What? Try it sometime. So those are important. Those are essential, but it's not the whole picture. Some of you are in a triad, you've been studying spiritual disciplines within the church, so you're seeing the other side. It's connectedness to the body is essential in order to grow up into Christ. This whole thing is a one another experience. And again, to be built up. Why? Why? Builds itself up in love. What does that mean at the end of this verse? What does that mean? Builds itself up in love. If you're sitting there thinking, 
Oh, good. Our church will be more loving toward me. You just missed the point. Grows itself up. The word love there is in selflessness. And so the members become more and more other-centered. More concerned about the other people. Listen, everybody comes in here with a problem. Every Sunday we all come in with a problem. We all come in with a burden. I I talked to five or six of you this morning at the door. Everybody has a burden, has a problem. That's our plight as humans in this world. The question for you is, can you allow the Spirit of God to gift you and work in you so that you stop focusing on your problem and begin to minister to someone else that has a problem? Guess what happens when the church does that? Somebody comes along and gets yours. Somebody comes along and ministers to your problem. That's what happens. To grow up in love means to get our minds off of ourselves and our own problems. And find out what can I do to help the people in the body of Christ. So what do we do with this? Okay, so let's let's think through this for just a moment. That Christ has gifted the church. What is he wanting to do? He, He is doing this so that each one of us will reach mature manhood. Spiritual maturity. That's what he's after. Maturity in the faith. To grow up in him. And so that's what he's after. Why? Because the church is to reflect the character of Christ That's what God is doing. God is not raising people from spiritual death to life and gathering them as his people so that we won't look anything like him. He's he's doing this so that when in the, the ages to come, when all of the beings of heaven and hell look at us, they can say, we see the image of Christ there. How did God do that with them? And so growing up in maturity, so how do you do it? We saw serving as one of those things. You've got to serve. You've got to find a place and serve. By knowing, knowing what? Well, know Christ. So I'm saved, good, but now know him. I, I got married a long time ago. But still, knowing her is learning her. And that's the way it is with Christ. You don't really know him yet. You have come to know Christ in the free pardon of sin. But you don't know him yet. Keep on knowing him. Deeper and deeper and more and more. And become more enamored and more enamored with Christ. Love him more. And learning. Learning what? The doctrines of the faith. Of the Christian faith. The basic doctrines of Christian faith. You've got to know it. You've got to know it. Tyler Little was teaching our Sunday school class this morning. And I went in. He, It's always disturbing to the teacher when I come in. You know, I don't know what that is. But anyway, Tyler's a great teacher. And um, so he said, well, Pastor, I thought you were going to be here today and all that stuff. I said, Tyler, listen, this is, this is really a mandate on me. If you don't do well, I didn't do well to teach you to get to do this well so the pressure is off just do what you do and then I'll find out if I did a good job helping you know how to teach better he did a fantastic job fantastic job this morning and one of the things that he did and I heard myself in it he says well I don't know 
when I first read this in the Sunday school lesson, what does this teach us about the doctrine of God? I went, oh, yes, he asked the question. What does it say about, because I've been telling them over and over. What does it say about God? What does it say about man? What does it say about Christ? What does it say about salvation? What does it say about the Holy Spirit? What does it say about the end times? What is this telling us? What does it say about the church? What is this telling us about that? And it's interesting, he came around and said, this is what it tells us about God. Perfect, perfect answer. And I thought to myself, man, I'm a good pastor. But this is how God does it. This is how. Some of you are in Sunday school. You have a great Sunday school team. We have really, really good teachers here, by the way. Really super good teachers. And you're, man, you're absorbing enough. So take that then and let it provide stability in your life, but also cause you to love Jesus more. And then take that love for Christ and pour that out upon your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in your local congregation. You know the easiest people to love are people that are members of another church. You ever notice that? Go to one of those Bible conferences, man. You love everybody because you don't have to put up with them. The, the time you have to be selfless is people that you're in covenant with. You're in agreement here like you've said to each other, I'm going to love you. Can't stand you right now, but I'm going to love you. And so it's giving ourselves away to one another. It's an agreement that we have. Christ has gifted you to do that. Pastor, I, I, I don't know how to do very much. He has gifted you. You have all that you need to do what he's telling you to do and calling you to do to be selfless and to love your church. Why? Why, why do that? So that to him will be glory in the church forever and ever throughout all generations. That's why he's doing that in you. Well, shall we pray together? We've gone far enough. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us your vision, your purpose, what you plan to accomplish and you will accomplish. If you've announced it, it's going to be done. Christ Jesus, thank you for saving us, but also for gifting us and placing us in a congregation of people, a church where we can practice selflessness, the selfless love of Christ, and also experience it at the hands of others. Lord, forgive us where we are immature and have not grown up in the faith in places that we ought to have. Help us to be patient with one another as we grow. Help us to help one another to grow up into mature manhood that we would look like Jesus. Father, I pray that as a result of that, a watching world would see the community that this is, this family, this group, and say, that's what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what it looks like to love Jesus. That's what it looks like. See how they love one another. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd work that in us more and more. I pray also, Father, for those who are here today that are outside of the family of God. They're part of the human family, but not the family of God. They've never come to you by faith and confidence in Jesus and thrown their whole plight into his hands. Holding nothing back, no plan B, no contingency, just Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would convict them of their sinfulness, help them to see their hatred toward you, their animosity. They may try to cover it with a sweet personality and kind words, but in their heart, they are against you. 
help them to see that that is the road to destruction. That is the road to hell. And many people are on that road. Lord, today I pray that you'd help them to see that Christ is all that they need and they would turn to him and be saved. Lord, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.